This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Diary of an F1 Boss is brought to you by Rye House Kart Raceway, the home of the next Missed Apex karting event on April 20th. Join us by going to mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. You're listening to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Token American Nick Numbers Alexander Heinick. Thanks for subbing in for Matt. We have substituted the regularly scheduled American co-host. Let's see if anyone notices. Probably not. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed. With the kind permission of our better halves, we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. We're also joined by ex-Lotus CEO and Mist Apex favourite friend of the show, Matthew Carter. Hello, Matthew. Hello, how are you? Now, remember when back in... 2013 2014 everyone was talking about shady operatives coming in and taking over lotus that was matthew carter <laughs> no it wasn't it wasn't me at all you know it then, was a gentleman by the name of mansour ijaz all right okay that's, that's foxed you hasn't it look <laughs> yeah i reckon that's a, just a pseudonym you can't fool us for long go google it he was a yeah. He was a uh, what's the best way to describe him? A charlatan, shall we say? Oh, really? He managed to come. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. He managed to come to a number of races on the uh, promise that he was just about to send hundreds of millions of pounds to buy the team, and he dragged it on for a, a lot through into my. So that was so. If you do Google him from memory, there's a picture of him at the 2013 Monaco Grand Prix. So that must have been May 2013. I took over in December. And he was still, he still had the team on the hook, on the premise that he was just, just about to pay, just about to pay, just about to pay. And is, is that the sort of root of the money problems, is it then, that Lotus had? Uh, I, I think it p- potentially didn't help. Um, so I'm, I know we've talked about this before, but 2013, uh, Lotus was very competitive. That was when Kimi was winning a few races and Roman was doing pretty well as well. And the owners sort of fell into that trap and um, the designers were constantly telling them that if they just threw another five million here or five million there, that they would get some more track speed. Um, 
And at that time, this gentleman popped up with his promise of hundreds of millions. So I certainly, uh, I don't think it helped. It maybe contributed to uh, to the, the money issues. So for new listeners to Missed Apex podcast, um, yeah, so you are not uh, naturally a, a motorsport team principal. You didn't grow up in London dreaming of being the next uh, uh, Toto Wolf. Uh, you came through it through money and ended up in team wear on a pit wall. I think I was a natural at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would say that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I came through, uh, well, you say through money, not my money by any stretch of the imagination. It was through uh, through the guys that owned the team at Lotus. Yeah, I was employed by the people that owned the team on other projects. And then and then this became, uh, or Lotus became one of the more uh, money sapping projects. So they, they put me in there to try and sort things out. So, so you got parachuted in, not like a works team where they go, okay, we're going into F1. Here's your budget. Here's your big Renault budget of £150 million a year. Go. It was more a case of protecting the investment, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if we ever really got into the numbers before, but um, 2013, which was the year. Uh, so I came in at the very end of the 2013 season. So as we were just saying, that was a year that they were Lotus was fairly competitive. Well, it was actually second in the championship for quite a period of time. And um, in that year, in that in that calendar year, they managed to lose sixty-four million pounds sterling loss. I mean, these are all public figures, so I'm not I'm not saying anything that's not out there in the in the real world. Um, they lost sixty-four million on a hundred and twenty million turnover. Wow! So Nick, as Nick as a numbers man, will appreciate the um, the interesting uh, nature that 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 holds. Um, so yeah, so I came in. Uh, on the back of that uh, terrible loss. First year that I was in charge, which was 2014, I cut the loss from 64 million to 5 million um, by laying off people and just cutting expenses and uh, just generally being a little bit more business-like rather than than sports-like. So... I wasn't planning on talking accounting on the Formula One podcast today. (laughs) So we'll uh, we'll keep it general business. So for our American listeners, um, when he says turnover, he just means, he just means revenue. You've gone on mute somehow. Okay. I have this theory and you can confirm or deny or extrapolate to your, to your heart's content. But I mean, would you say that being the CEO of a formula one team is not entirely different than being the CEO of, of anything else? I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, the, in fact, in many ways, as a business model, it's much simpler than, than most other businesses. So I run other businesses for the two, the two owners, um, many other businesses for them. And, and Formula One, really, there's only two forms of income. So you've got the money that you get from your sponsors and the money you get from, it was Bernie at the time, now it's Liberty. And they're pretty much set at the start of the season. So you know exactly what's coming in. It's just a case of managing, uh, managing your expenditure. Um, so yeah, I honestly, I think it's very, very similar to many other businesses. Um, and that was kind of the way I approached it when I went in there. I mean, you've got a HR department, you've got a marketing department, you've got an accounting department. And, uh, I just run it as, as, as I would any other business, apart from the fact that the, the end product was two cars going around a racetrack. Um, the, the, the variable or the, the curveball is the fact that you've got, um, the business being judged and assessed every two weeks against its uh, main competitors in a very, very public forum. Um, and there's nowhere to hide. 
Um, and also, the, obviously, the other aspect that I wasn't necessarily used to was the publicity and the journalists and the TV cameras. And the media. So you, you've got to sit there and do a press conference suddenly in on a sporting stage. And some of those messages are so sort of banal. And uh, and I guess early on, a lot of them were very sporty specific. So do, do you think, did you ever feel like, oh, I'm going to get found out any second here? Yeah, I, th- I think we've had this discussion before. I was uh, slightly embarrassed after my first race when uh, I was asked a few questions and I didn't really necessarily know the answer to historic things. So I, I genned up on it very, very quickly. I, sudden, I suddenly sort of immersed myself in Formula One in any way that I could. Well, the, the CEO really shouldn't necessarily know all the weeds and details, especially historically speaking, of everything that ever happened in the business. It's your understanding to get a, a snapshot and understand where the business is at a point in time and, and then kind of what you can do from there. So it's, it's really interesting. You've, you've kind of confirmed, confirmed my understanding that the, the money that you have coming in is, is relatively set. But isn't it true that as you, as you try to spend more money to earn more money, it's not necessarily a linear input output kind of relationship. I mean, wouldn't you get big jumps? in revenue for finishing at different steps on the constructor's ladder, if you will. How does that, yeah. how does that affect your decision-making? Uh, well, completely. Well, for a team like Lotus at the time, uh, very much so, because uh, in, in rough, broad numbers, it's about $10 million difference per position that you finish in the, uh, in the constructor's championship. Um, so I know I've had this discussion stroke argument on here before, but that's why to the teams, the Constructors' Championship is more important than the Drivers' Championship. Um, and that can make a huge difference. So um, so go back to 2013, as I was talking about before, Lotus fell from second to fourth um, because Kimi stopped, basically because Kimi stopped driving for them. So Kimi signed his contract to go to Ferrari, developed a mysterious back problem that meant he couldn't drive the last three races. And the team dropped from second to fourth. So there was... Uh, at the time, it was a little bit more than ten million, so I think it was about twenty-five million dollars difference. So, so I have to, I have to have the opportunity here, a unique opportunity to maybe stick it to Spanners a little bit. So, I, I, I think Spanners will will often speculate or or assert that Ferrari do not care about the constructors' championship; that they only care about the drivers' championship. Not exactly what I said, but no, you know, no, that's I, exactly what you said, and we're going to dispel it publicly what i've said is if it came down to a situation they would take i think the prestige because there's a big media value to having the champ and if it was for the title not necessarily in the midfield but if you've got the champ the next season that's that's a big deal and i reckon that has a value all of its all of its own uh well it doesn't have a monetary value unless you well okay i guess you could you could say that that would generate more potential sponsor, but I don't think and Ferrari is a is a anomaly slightly because I genuinely don't think they necessarily worry too much about the money side of things. They've got their crazy deal that they signed with Bernie that gives them more than anyone else anyway. They've got all their um, historical payments and rights and revenues that Bernie really Bernie really bent over backwards to make sure they would stay in the sport. Yeah, I get for now, but it would be it would be really tricky to uh, to play hardball with them. Matthew, before we get too much into the weeds of future revenue splitting and cost caps and regulations for 2021, it's it's interesting. I don't think I quite picked up 
the fact that you basically did a moniker in Friends and you had to go into a new position and just immediately lay off people who were friends with each other, who were in families. Did that make you like immediately unpopular? Were you like Matthew Hatchett Carter? Uh, I've done it many, many times in many businesses and I would like to think no. I, uh, I'm not sure how much of the minutiae you want to get into, but on day one, I, uh, I addressed all 600 members of staff, um, at Lotus. And, um, so bear in mind these towards the end of 2013. And again, this is all public. So I'm not saying anything untoward towards the end of 2013. There was a number of months when the staff didn't get paid. Um, or they got, well, they did get paid eventually, but they got paid very late. So everyone was in that frame of mind where they appreciated that the business was uh, was clearly not going well. So day one, I addressed all 600 staff. And I remember to this day, I, they put me on a pallet on a forklift truck and lifted me up in the air so that I could talk to them, so that I could be slightly raised up from them in the, in the, in the main uh, like an em- Like an emperor. Everyone had to have their <laughs> head below Matthew Carter's eye level. It was more so they could see me, to be fair. Um, And I said to them at the time, I said, you know, we are, I'm I'm here to try and rescue things, to try and help things out. And uh, there's going to have to be some changes. We're going to have to do some restructuring. So if any of you are, uh, have got opportunities elsewhere, or if any of you are approaching retirement age, and you want to take early retirement, or if any of you, you know, have got any reason that you may want to be one of the first out the door, then, you know, by all means, come and see me and, uh, we can try and arrange that. Um, and it, by I've always found that by being perfectly upfront and honest like that, that people tend to realize that what you're doing is for the greater good. It's not, um, I wasn't there to, um, to really, really upset anyone. And I think we've had this discussion before. So that was day one. I started the process very quickly. And then by about day nine or 10, so bear in mind when I came in, I said to the owners, I know nothing about Formula One. Uh, I can run the business side of you. And they said, don't worry, we've got Eric Boulier. He's going to run all the racing side for you. You just need to run the business side. So I said, okay, no problem. So day nine or 10, Eric <laughs> comes into my office and says that he's been offered the job at McLaren. And it's like a footballer being offered a position at Man United. It was his dream job and he he couldn't possibly say no. So I said, okay, fine. Rang the owners immediately and said, look, you know, we've got a slight problem here. And they said, no problem. We're going to fax you through a list of potential replacements. I think it was still a fax then. Maybe maybe not. Anyway, they, they sent me through a list of potential replacements. And I think the lowest uh, value of a salary was somewhere in the region of half a million pounds. And I had literally come out of a meeting with someone who was earning about 25,000, who I was potentially going to have to, to lay off. So I then went back to the owners and said, impossible i can't do this you know it's this is it goes against every grain of my uh, my feelings about you know this job and this position and they said okay well you need to deal with it and sort it out so i called in the senior staff a guy called alan permain who's the sporting director the guy who famously had the argument with kimmy when kimmy told him to shut up i know what i'm doing um and he said look i can take over most of what eric does at the track apart from the media and the um and the meetings that all the team principals need to go to. So if you can do that and you can do the business side, I think we can get through without having to replace him. That's interesting. So, that's so, so how come he didn't fancy that? Is he just not that kind how of guy? Come, how come he didn't fancy doing just the media side of it? Or did he feel like... Yeah, I, th- I think he's. I think he genuinely is, is not that kind of guy. And I think he was also doing his own job, which is um, 
so as I say, he's the his title is sporting director, I think. Um, so he is kind of he's on the pit wall. He's the go to guy on the pit wall. So uh, back in the day, you would very rarely have heard. In fact, I don't think you ever heard Eric Boulier over the over the, the pit radio. But Alan Permain, you certainly would have done. So he was that guy. So he had his own job, and we sort of carved up Eric's um, responsibilities, which weren't that many, to be fair. And um, and then we and we and we went racing with effectively me as team principal and CEO. And that was why in my first press conference, uh, I appreciate CEOs don't need to know history about sport and teams, but I did look like a bit of a Muppet in the first, uh, the first media briefing because I, uh, I was like a fish out of water. So they do this in, in, you know, in companies quite a lot. I'm sure everybody will have had an experience where a, a middle manager has left and they simply gap those responsibilities by just giving people below and above more work to do you don't think of that from a, an f1 team principal our uh, boulier's gone oh well it's all right we'll just we'll just gap it we'll, we'll get fred to do the press conferences we'll get matthew to do the team meetings you go wow that's a, a heck of a way to run an organization sorry nick you were trying to get in mate yes so just more questions about about that first day so i can't believe first of all that they lifted you up on a forklift because that seems horribly unsafe nowadays the forklift would have a halo <laughs> around the pallet i think to to hold you in <laughs> um a european in the chat room wants to know if they you know he seems a little bit surprised that they actually lowered you back down after a speech like that was that in your mind did you think that you <laughs> know vulnerable you only deliver such bad news for risk of being left high and dry I, without wishing to blow my own trumpet at all, I think it was good news. I think that they had been, they hadn't really been, as a as a collective, they'd not really been spoken to for a number of months. They'd gone through times when they hadn't been paid, when um, they saw Kimmy walk away. They saw Kimmy very publicly tell everyone that he hadn't been paid for over a year. Um, and right, I so think we just... To ask you about that. So okay. Darren, Darren Johnston in the in the chat room, one of our one of our moder- moderators and and patrons, wanted to ask if there was any validity to to that statement. I mean, you said that the staff had not been being paid. Is the driver not just the most expensive staff? Yeah. So Kimmy hadn't been paid for over a year. So Kimmy, again, I think we've had this discussion, and again, I think it's fairly public. When Kimmy came back into the sport when Lotus signed him, he. Um, He's quite clever. His manager is a guy called Steve Robertson, and they were quite clever. They did a deal whereby he got a uh, a basic salary, and then he got a bonus of fifty thousand euros per point that he scored. Sure, so his first his first race back was Australia, twenty twelve, which he won. So he got twenty five points. <laughs> so he got half a million euro bonus. Then the second race, I think he came second, so he got eighteen points. This was in within one month. So within that month, he'd already racked up nearly uh, not far short of a million euros worth of bonuses. And he continued through the season like that. And by the time I was, uh, by the time I came in at the end of 2013, he had a winding up petition uh, against the company for 15 million euros of, of wages that he hadn't been paid. So we've talked about entering uh, the sport in the way you have and teams uh, being funded by investors. So thats I don't think that's a model we currently have, is it, with uh, with any teams at the moment? Um, well, I guess you could say Racing Point, maybe. All right. Okay. Yeah, I tend to think of that as a, a shadow front for the reality that is Lawrence Stroll setting up a, a Lance vehicle. Oh, but that's the question you asked, wasn't it? What was yeah, the question you yeah. asked? Yeah, no, Whether no. Not so, yeah. Funding, yeah, investors. Um Racing point. I mean, I, I guess you could say has to a certain extent. Um, I, 
my thoughts on Hassel that it's a way for Gene has to promote his business. Um, it's tricky. Yeah, there's not many. I, th- I think most of them are anything that's not a, not a major car company um, is generally there for another reason. I mean, a Red Bull there to race or a Red Bull there to sell fizzy drinks. Uh, we've got a question actually from, I think this one was from Twitter. It's uh, Vara Salander and he says, have you watched the Netflix series? And if so, how does the relationship you had with Roman Grosjean compare with the one Gunter Steiner has in the series? Were you as blunt? Were you as direct with Roman? Uh, no. I would say that you have to bear in mind that I had two drivers and you generally tend to um, need to score points. And one of my drivers wasn't particularly good at scoring points, and the other one was Roman. So I was fairly blunt with him, but I couldn't be quite as blunt. But I went through the same frustrations. I mean, Roman crashed under a safety car uh, in the wet once. Um, Roman uh, had a number of um, shunts and bumps. But the the thing with Roman is he's very, very when he's and I think Gunter said this, when his head is in the right place, he is very, very fast and very, very consistent. Um, so my relationship with Roman was, uh, yeah, I th- I'm probably not as blunt as Gunter, um, but a little bit more sort of arm around the shoulder, I guess. So are, are you relieved that there was no Netflix series when you were in the paddock? Or do you think, oh, do you know what? It would have been nice to have an insight there. You, you could was- have been Gunter. When I watched it, I was thinking they could have there could have been a whole nine episodes on Lotus if they really if they'd been following Lotus in 2015, with us not having tires given to us in Hungary because we hadn't paid Pirelli, having no hospitality in Mexico because we couldn't afford to pay the the circuit, having uh, going to the High Court because we had um, the VAT office trying to close a business down, dealing with Renault, etc., etc., etc. If any of that, scoring a podium in in uh, Belgium. Um, when we had bailiffs in the in the garage at the time, I mean, it's it just would have written itself. Well, you you could write it. I would read it if you wrote a book <laughs> detailing all of those fun stories. I mean, it does sound sounds you know very intriguing in in long form. Yeah, that was yeah, that's just one season. But yeah, it was <laughs> it was 2015 was a crazy season. It really was a crazy season. Uh, and of course, um, Haas uh, has a link to you because uh, a lot of your old employees ended up. That has. Yeah, they. so when Roman went, he took uh, so our senior race engineer, quite a few of the mechanics, uh, the strategist, all went to Hast with, well, not necessarily with Roman, actually, but they, they kind of followed Roman there. Um, so, yeah, when I, when I walk down the paddock now, there's probably as many um, familiar faces at Haas as there are at Renault. So I've just finished listening to the uh, Beyond the Grid, which had Gunter Steiner on it, presumably to cash in on his popularity from the Netflix series. Uh, But that business model that they have, very different. So Gunter Steiner's there talking about how, you know, they come in and they said, well, we can't do the same thing as the Manners and the Mauritius that are failing. So we've got to do something else. And I was actually quite surprised how candid he was, because he's basically saying, you know, the, the model is essentially customer team light, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is very much so. They, uh, they've got a very different approach. I mean, it's, um, I think it did annoy a lot of the, the more traditional teams, the way that they went about it. As he says on that podcast, which I listened to this morning as well, actually, um, he, they didn't do anything that was outside of the rules. And they didn't do anything that anyone else can't do. Um, it was interesting in there that he actually, when he talked about, he made, he made an interesting comment about money and cash. 
I think he was talking a little bit about when he was at Jaguar and the fact that Ford wouldn't put any money into the team and that you needed to invest money um, to make a move up the grid. And I think they've done that quite well um, in terms of, I mean, obviously I have a little bit of history with Manor as well and I, and the, the difference between the way Haas have approached it in terms of money and the way that Manor could approach it in terms of money is, is vastly different. I, I think we've, we've spoken offline about Manor and keep saying we should talk about it on the podcast. So, I mean, that team came in, was it was it too much ambition or was it just too difficult to get into F1 at that time? What was the main failing? Uh, well, no, they, they were in F1. They um, So the iteration of Manor that I um, briefly worked for was, so they were Marussia, and they were Manor, and then a guy called Stephen Fitzpatrick bought the team um, 2015, I guess he bought it. Um, but the difference, I think the difference between that model, the Caterham, Marussia, uh, HRT type model was the, and again, it's it's kind of referenced in the podcast by Gunter, is the, is the backer, is the fact that Gene Haas has got the cash that he's put into it. Now, the guy who bought Manor was a, was a wealthy guy, but wealthy doesn't really cut it in f1 you need to be a bit more than that and i think it's interesting that when Haas came in the drivers that they got um so roman went there straight away and i know that they paid him they paid him good money certainly money that the smaller teams can't afford to do more money than he would have got at toro rosso certainly more than he would have got at sauber at the time um so they offered good wages and the first season they had gutierrez in there as well and he brought a lot of sponsorship money but didn't necessarily score the points and that was kind of the position that we were in with um, with Pasta, <laughs> and a little bit, that, yeah. and, and a little bit where Williams are today as well. Um, and I think that Haas, Gene Haas, has got the wherewithal to realise that and to say, okay, um, we need two drivers that are going to score us points regularly. And then they went out and got Magnussen. So uh, universally, listeners and the feedback we get when you come on, Matthew, is positive and people love you. But we should remember that you you facilitated Pastor Maldonado. You are Maldonado zero, pretty much. You, you kept him going. No Carter, no Maldonado. I don't really understand what you mean. You mean if the team hadn't kept going, he wouldn't have kept going? Well, presumably you had a hand in keeping him on as a driver. Uh, no. Oh. No, no, no. They signed the deal at the end of 2013. I mean, it was, it was when I walked in there in 2013, I walked into a storm of mess. Um, they had agreed to take Pasta from Williams because he was bringing a huge amount of money from the oil PDVSA, the oil company in Venezuela. And um, Pasta moved from Williams to Lotus because Williams were so poor at the time. Uh, They were sort of towards the back end of the grid and Lotus were doing fairly well. He came into Lotus when the regulations changed and we had the terrible Renault engine and he went from the back of the grid to probably even further at the back of the grid. <laughs> and the guys from PDVSA, the Venezuelans were pumping huge amounts of cash into the team. Um, and they thought that they were going upwards. And if you remember that first season, Williams did incredibly well. So I think the first race they made, did they get a podium in the first race or they were certainly, they did very, very well. And we were 21st and 22nd at the time. Um, so I, I just want to get a little bit of clarification on why Pastor Maldonado was not your choice? Were you saying that it was not your prerogative in your role or you were locked in with the contract or just that the the money that the Venezuelan oil company was bringing in was just so much that if it was lost, it would just be impossible to figure out how to carry on? Has he frozen? I think he has frozen. Oh, well, there we go. 
Hopefully he'll come back. The, the <laughs> so, money, oh, sorry. The money um, was... We just missed the beginning of that answer, Matthew. I apologize because uh, you cut oh. out. I said, I said a little bit of all of the above. Um, so, yes, the money was good. The contract was signed before I walked in the door. So the contract was signed, done, dusted before I walked in. Um, so I was, I, 2014, I had no option. I had uh, Roman Grosjean and, and Pastor Maldonado. They were our two drivers. They were signed. Um, both of them were on long contracts. But as we know, there's the, that's not to say that you can't break a contract, but certainly that first year, there was no way I was going to break a contract um, with Pasta. I was responsible for bringing Charles Peak in as the reserve driver, and we managed to get some cash from him. And then 2015, again, it was a it was a toss up as to whether or not we took someone the likes of Sergio Perez or we stuck with um, Pastor Maldonado. And uh, I was slightly overruled from above, <laughs> and we stayed with Maldonado. I, I just have to play some some what if, I guess. So. What if you had come in and you decided that you did want to break that contract because you know they're not, no one's holding a gun to your head to to make Pastor drive for you? How do you think you could have gotten somebody else to come in and drive for you, or do you think that would have negatively, irreparably hurt your reputation as someone who didn't kind of honor the terms of the deal? Interesting terminology, gun at the head, with the uh, Venezuelans that were behind Pasta. But anyway, we'll move on from not that. Not intentional, uh, they, not a political um, statement. Miss Apex has no. Uh, we're not a. We're not an, uh, an embassy or anything like that. We, we we're covered. We're covered. <laughs> Good save. Good save. Um, I could I have got anyone else? Yeah, I mean, we were we were in discussions. I think um, I think Sergio Perez would have come. I mean, you an F one team for crying out loud, you can you can get a driver to come to you for sure. And at the time Lotus were uh well I'd like to think we were we were midfield. We certainly weren't we weren't the worst cars on the grid. Um so I'd like to think that we could have got another driver fairly easily. Um but there was a contract in place. It was a it was it was good in terms of the the money that he was paying for his seat. Um and we had Roman there and um certainly that first year I had bigger fish to fry than to worry about um to worry about past i've got a nice question from the chat room here matthew could you please ask mr carter after how many years does he think he would become obsolete as a team principal after being away from f1 but from the stories we've heard today i mean you winged it once surely you could just drop in and do it again (laughs) (laughs) obsolete from f1 I, i have no idea i mean again listening to gunter Steiner was away from the sport for a number of years, wasn't oh, he? Right. Doing NASCAR yes. or something, yeah. and he came back. I mean, it's it's all about opportunity, and and I think we've discussed on here many times. There are only ten team principals, uh, and of those ten, I would say currently ten are pretty much cemented into their positions. Um, there's not many. I mean, the 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 ones that were sort of teetering were obviously Ariva Bene. He's now been replaced. Um, Claire isn't actually a team principal issue. She's deputy team principal. Um, Are you sure you've got no, no, uh, you know, links to the Williams family anywhere? No blood ties hidden away deep in the Carter ancestry? Well, maybe I should do that um, DNA for me or whatever it's called. Uh, I think we're going to talk a bit about Williams because about half, do you reckon, Nick, of the questions we got on Twitter were Williams-based? A surprising proportion, uh, a very high question to pace ratio okay so we're going to ask matthew carter his opinions on williams after a word from our sponsors 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're back. Williams. Now, I know you have no relationship uh, with Williams, Matthew. However, it is a fascinating example of a team struggling with their finances something you do have experience of and I mean going back to them going to testing and missing the first few days it's it's a desperate situation when you've got all the other cars going around on track I mean Claire Williams seems to publicly be saying no no it's nothing to do with money uh the fact that we can't get spare parts that's nothing to do with money not turning up for testing was nothing to do with money it's to do with xyz reasons but it, it seems an awful lot like it's money. Yes. Good. Moving on to <laughs> Renault. I concur. <laughs> no, I think it, it, it definitely is to do with money and they can, um, and I think that's obvious, you know, I, but I, having said all that, you know, you, you have to realize that when you're in front of the media, you have to try and put a positive spin on things for your sponsors and for uh, people that are reading this, uh, reading and, and consuming the media. Um, but obviously it's, it, it's fairly obvious it's to do with money. I mean, if it was not to do with money, then they could have turned up with um, last year's car um, to go testing to to at least give the drivers some time on the track. They could, they would have got dispensation to do that for sure. They could have tested the tyres based on uh, last year's car. They could have botched a front wing on a rear wing to make sure that they had something to go testing with. But um, they they clearly didn't. They didn't have the money. And we missed testing in 2014 for very similar reasons. Um, there's long lead times on F1 parts. Um, and if you don't pay at the time that you're supposed to pay, they, you get shunted down the list. It's it's fairly hard, but that, it, it's, a, it's a fact of life. Ah, right. Ex- explain that to me a little bit, because I think uh, a lot of people were yelling at me when I suggested it was money and they couldn't pay for parts. Um, no change that. The, yeah, people, people yell at me a lot. People are mean. Uh, although actually people say a lot of nice things. If you want to leave us nice comments on iTunes, you could as well. Uh, um, a five-star review. You can say whatever you want, as long as it's five stars. You can have a go at Nick's beard. Yeah, you can attack me physically as long as it's five stars. I'm happy. Um, so the thinking is, well, if I contract a unique part and I say, make me this thing for my car and then I can't pay, the manufacturer is, is sat there with this part and you can't then sell it to 
Ferrari to put into their car. So what am I missing? Uh, the whole point of the um, the conversation. Oh, right. Okay. Good. So it's not that, so the unique parts. So, okay. So aside from Haas, because they have their own, their own business model, which is different from everyone else, the unique parts are pretty much all built and made by the teams in-house. So Williams will have their own, uh, their own body shop, their own uh, modeling shop where they build the carbon fiber parts that they need. The bits I'm talking about are things that, um, so for example, I think nine of the 10 teams use X-Track gearboxes. And Extract only have so much uh, capacity to produce gearboxes, and therefore, if you say to Extract, "Okay, we need a gearbox for the first of January," and they say, "Okay, you're in for build week, whatever," you have to pay us this amount of money on whatever. They're not going to just wait for the money to arrive. They've become savvy to that. Enough teams have gone bankrupt for them to realise that just because they're dealing with an F1 team doesn't mean they're going to get paid. So, um, if you slip down the line on um, Gearbox brakes are another one. There's only a couple of manufacturers of brakes. I think there was Brembo and I can't remember the other company. There's two companies that make brakes, and the lead time on them is is incredibly long as well. So if they've got Ferrari asking for double the quantity and Lotus asking for a quantity, and Lotus can't afford to pay the deposit, then they just they just shunt you down the line. And um, and presumably they can just hold those brakes for when Ferrari do want new brakes exactly yeah Yeah, all right okay exactly so so so, yeah i mean i was roundly shouted down a lot when we were saying about uh, williams but um a vindication wouldn't you say i'd say nick i'd say vindication Uh, i would say so i couldn't believe that that feedback like of, of, of course it's money it's always money exactly i mean yes i mean unless no well it is always money i mean i was gonna i was gonna make some like outlandish analogy but it, it is of course it is i mean there's no way that someone's missed the fact that the testing was happening on this date and they've suddenly thought oh i can't believe testing's crept up on us like that i mean it, it, it's it's money for sure they they fired their team manager for that one yeah i mean that's i mean where there's a whole i mean my my general thoughts on williams run quite deep with all that sort of stuff well, can um, I can I, mean, I interrupt with a question from yeah. our Slack group? Because Ray said, uh, during your time as team principal, did you have any dealings with the, what he calls the current Williams full boy, Paddy Lowe? Uh, what are your impressions of Lowe? And then, you know, from my point of view, was he just taking the brunt of the, like, there must be a sacrifice to the F1 gods? So he, so Paddy was at Mercedes at my time. So yes, I dealt with, so we... Um, we moved from Renault to Mercedes 2014 to 2015. So Toto, a guy called Andy Cowell, who runs the engine department, and Paddy were the three guys that I dealt with um, to negotiate the contract to, for them to supply us with engines. So I know him reasonably well. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. He seems, uh, he seems competent. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't work with, with him. Um, do I think he was the full guy? I guess a little bit. I think they maybe had to they had to be a full guy. But my thoughts on Williams are that they were probably, along with Force India, were the biggest uh, gainers from the regulation change in 2014. So they stumbled onto the Mercedes engine. Um, I think I've, I've maybe not said this before. So Lotus were offered a Mercedes engine prior to 2014 for a quarter of the price of the Renault engine. And they signed a long-term agreement with Renault because 
during the prior to the hybrid era, the Renault engine was obviously the best. They'd just come off the back of Red Bull winning four world championships. Lotus had been fairly successful with them, so they decided that Renault was the way to go. Um, well, when you, so when you point out all those things, it sounds reasonable. Yes. So, so Williams, so Williams, I don't think ran out and chose Mercedes and made a, a genius decision. And the same with, with Force India as it was at the time. Uh, what they stumbled into maybe is a little bit harsh, but they stumbled into 2014 with by far the best engine. I mean, our Renault engine couldn't get round a lap of the circuit sometimes. I mean, it was just braking left, right and center, whether it was in our car or in the Red Bull. Um, so the Mercedes engine all of a sudden pinged Williams from, 11th in the constructors or wherever they finished in in 2013 right up to third or fourth um on on, and again i'll i'll assert the fact that it was basically all down to the to the engine and the fact that they had that engine which was so much faster than than all the others they then if you look at their progression since then they've gradually as the regulations have become more stable and the other engines catch up with the mercedes williams have gradually gone backwards because their aero in my opinion was never that good. Um, so they had a false dawn in terms of look how good we are because we're getting these great results. And it was nothing to do with the aero or the, the chassis component. It was all to do with the engine is, is my opinion on where they are. And I think as the other engines have caught up their, their lack of, um, a coherent, uh, chassis aerodynamic, uh, model has, has, has been found out and that's, and that's where they are. Uh, so I don't think. Yeah, sorry. sorry, no, it's right. Well, they they started really high, I think, in testing 2014 before they got the Martini deal, and they seem to sort of come out. Obviously, in testing, you don't have to run everything quite spec. I think they were suddenly like at the top in day two or three, signed the Martini deal, then you know strapped on their real aero and weren't quite as good. Uh, but if if aero has been their problem, uh, and that hasn't changed, isn't 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 that something that could have been addressed in the last five years? For a, for a top team? But that, that's where, in, in my opinion, I think that that's where their problem lies. And I think that is probably why they brought Paddy Lowe in. I don't think they gave him enough time to deal with it. And I think they, they probably did use him as a little bit of a fall guy. But um, yes, of course yeah. they need to. But it's easy, it's easy to say that. When you're in, when you're in the bubble, um, and I came in looking at, at F1 with fresh eyes, I guess a little bit, but that was why, I mean, did Lotus go from eighth to fifth in the championship fighting for fourth from 2014 to 2015 because I was a genius and the, the aerodynamics department? No, we went from Renault to a Mercedes engine. <laughs> no. But absolutely no question of a doubt that that, that, that pinged us from, we, we, we got a podium for God's sake in Spa. No, that was nothing to do with the fact that the Lotus suddenly became the greatest, most aerodynamically <laughs> efficient car on the, on the grid. <laughs> It was because we had the best engine, and as we've discussed many times at that time, Mercedes didn't want Vettel to to score points, so they gave us extra boost when we needed it. So this show is your opportunity to self-proclaim yourself as a genius. I just want to be clear that you you can make all sorts of wild <laughs> assertions about yourself. So I wanted well, I, to ask. I was going to say, I think it was genius not to continue with Renault, but anyway. Fair enough. I wanted to ask because I don't think we've had you on since the season has begun, or I'm sure that we haven't with the aero regulations becoming more simple this year. Wouldn't you have expected Williams to improve? I mean, is, is their station at the back as far back as it is shocking to you? 
Um, is it shocking to me? I no, because the aero uh, rules have been simplified, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier to to build a fast car. It just means that you have to. It almost makes it more difficult because you have to look outside the box a little bit, and that's why you're seeing some sort of intricate changes further down down from the front wing. I mean, some different approaches to the front wing for sure, but you kind of have to look outside of the box and around the box a little bit more. Um, the other, t- in, in my opinion, the other teams have taken a step forward, um, and that's generally financial. So uh, Toro Rosso have always been fairly fairly stable, but I think that. Um, Honda came in and I think that Red Bull gave Toro Rosso a little bit more cash to to work with Honda um, Sauber obviously with the Alfa Romeo money have suddenly taken a step forward they've got better drivers and they've, they've obviously improved their era so all of a sudden if the midfield all starts to take a step in the right direction then someone has to end up at the back um, there's no caterums or manners or you know kicking around anymore it's that midfield is, is really hard fought and, uh, and I think it just means that Williams has been found out so a couple of Twitter questions because uh, I, d- I don't know if uh, Rodray knows my my relationship history, but you know when Samantha was treating me badly, I, I, I went and, and I had a couple of years with 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 Vicky Edwards, and then that all went wrong. And I went, well, well, maybe Samantha wasn't so bad. It turned out to be a sign of desperation. Is the return of Patrick Head to save Williams a sign of desperation and un- unwillingness to modernise the teams and or except that Ms. Edwards was probably the right one all along? Um, I, I, I never had any dealings with Patrick because I think he left in, in 2011, so it was before, it was before my time. Um, my understanding is that he's a pretty um, hard-nosed, blunt um, person, so maybe that's what they need. Maybe they need someone to go in there and to, and to, and to rattle some cages um i think it's it's easy within a formula one team for people to um certainly in a formula one team that's not doing very well for people to get on easy street um and to and to not really go the extra the extra yards and i've i've seen reference to uh leclerc at uh sauber last year as being one of those examples when the, the mechanics and the engineers, suddenly when they realised they had a driver that was capable of giving them some good results, they suddenly up their game and uh, suddenly the pit, stops are, the pit stops start getting faster and suddenly the, the aero guys stay a little bit longer at night and um, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously makes sense that all those engineers, they need to have purpose in what they're doing and if they're working late for a driver who's just going to shunt anyway, then there's no point. Um, and I hope you're right um, that Patrick Head is the personality that they need to to kick things in gear and get things going because I don't want to see them as far back as they are just because they're not in the mix and it's not, it's not interesting. But my gut is telling me, asking what made the team successful in the past and kind of returning to that and assuming that it will help you be successful again in the future is kind of a logical fallacy. And I, I think, I think they need to go in a, my, my gut would tell me that you should probably go in a different direction altogether, but like I don't a, know, Patrick. Yeah, like a no, I, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I necessarily said he was the right. I said that he, it's if possible. he's fairly no nonsense and he's going to, rattle some cages and so be it. Um, I don't necessarily agree that what worked in the past is going to work in the future because Formula One has moved on 
even since my time, I think it's it, it's moved on. It's 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 a different um, it's a different formula now than it was. Right. So I, I wasn't trying to say that you were backwards thinking. I was saying that it may appear that Williams may be backwards thinking. Just want to just want to clear that air. <laughs> I tell you what, I want, I want to finish up by uh, talking about what has become your old team at Renault, because I know you have a lot of loving feelings towards Renault as a Formula One team. You sit there on a Sunday in, in all yellow, you know, they, they go, oh, your dad's gone into his banana colours for the F1 race. Uh, but before that, uh, I just want to tell you guys about an opportunity to come and hang out with some of the Mist Apex crew. Mr. Carter, why aren't you coming karting with us? Just hop on your private yellow jet and, and come karting with us at Roy House. I think I'm busy that weekend. Washing his hair, no doubt. But if you're not busy on April 20th, why not come karting with us at Rye House? It's just north of the northernmost point of the M25 near Harlow, near a town called Hoddesdon. You can race at the back if you're rubbish with me and Chris and Jeansy, or if you're really good, you can test yourself up front with the likes of Kyle Power, Alex Brundle, and Bradley Philpot, who will all definitely be up at the front. You you won't beat them, but it is fantastic being on track with drivers of that calibre. Rye House has got new machines. They have a brand new fleet of Biz Twin Le Mans Cuts, 36 brand new machines, and they will only be a month old when we get there, which is the perfect time to drive carts. But you can come and race through these new carts with us. What we'll have is we'll have nine heats, and you'll fight for a place in three finals. The track itself is genuinely fantastic. There's about three or four, I reckon, of that calibre of outdoor tracks in the UK, and Rye House is one of them. We're doing a live podcast at 11am, and you can be in the live audience, and then at 1pm, we'll have our briefings and get going for the heats at 2pm. So if you want to get involved in that, go to mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting, or you can email me, spannersready at gmail.com. Hope to see you there. The edit will reflect that that was quite a good plug for the karting event. <laughs> However, Matthew Carter, um, so the team that you were in charge of ended up becoming Renault. So I'm, I'm sure you obviously ho- follow that team with interest, if not a genuine supporter in yellow cheering on. Go on, Cyril, you can do it. Is there a question there? What was the, what was the question? Do I follow Yeah, them? I'm sure you follow them quite closely out of curiosity. I know. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes. They have one of the most interesting driver dynamics at the moment because, you know, uh, Formula One answers questions very slowly. So we learn about drivers very slowly over their career. Nico Hülkenberg considered a bit of a journeyman and now he's got the supposed megastar, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, who's who's come in, in from a reputation of being fast, punchy overtaker, super nice bloke, hasn't hit the ground running at Renault. So I just wondered what your opinion was. My opinion, Jolian beat Hulkenberg on occasion. Therefore, Jolian's better than Ricciardo. Huh? Yeah. No, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> what my opinion is that uh, moving from one team to another, uh, from one car to another, is not as easy um, as it would appear from the outside. And I think... I think actually, I think Ricciardo's come on record and said that he's overdriving the car. Um, I think he is still expecting it to do what a Red Bull does, and if anything, it has uh, highlighted the the shortfalls between the Renault and the Red Bull. Well, yeah, I think it was in the, to the BBC. He made a comment along the lines of, 
like he was expecting. He's still used to a car that drives better or something. And it, it's not a great indictment of the team you've just moved to if you want to make friends and influence people do you necessarily want to say i've been making mistakes because i'm used to a much better car did he say better or did he say different no i all right i'll find the quote well, oh, really? well what, no, nick no, no, you jump in i'll okay. find the quote i think he yeah, said I mean, that I, it's, it but it's rear stability through corners at speed which is yeah. code for better yeah <laughs> but it's i, I mean it, it's what the only reason I question it is because I know the way that they are told what to say in front of the cameras and the way I was told what to say in front of the cameras and to be careful. But for sure, I mean, the, the, the Red Bull is a, is a completely better car than the Renault. And um, it, was, it was shown when they had the same engines that, that, it, was, that it was a better car. And, and as I've said many times, you know, each year is just really an, uh, an iteration of the previous year's car. So it's not as if Renault have suddenly... Um, torn up the aerodynamic rule book and, and come out with an amazing car. Yeah. So the, um, I forget what his exact role was, but somebody on the board of directors, I believe his name was Gone. He is Carlos. Yeah. Carlos Gone. Yeah. What do you think that will do since he had historically been a proponent for Renault being in formula one in the first place? So he, so he was the guy that was arrested in, um, in Japan, maybe six months ago, something like that. Um, over some sort of irregularities with uh, company money. Um, and he was the guy that was the main uh, driver behind Renault buying Lotus, um, or one of the main drivers. I think Cyril was the one that put the uh, put the plan together, but Carlos was, was for sure the guy that, um, from the top level, was the one that pushed it and, and made the decision because they were teetering very much 50-50 on whether or not to pull out of F1 completely or to go the opposite route, which would be to continue to supply engines and also to be a team. And they made that decision. And I was privy to some of those conversations. And I know that he was one of the only guys that was uh, that was pushing originally for them, to, for them to go fully into Formula One. So he turned other board members around. Um, having said all that, they've now invested enough money into it that it's going to be difficult for them to to take a step backwards, I think. Um, whether or not they will get the sign-off to really challenge Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull, um, I'm not so sure because I think he would have been the guy that would have made the argument for that because um, it's, it's quite a difficult argument because if they really go full-bloodedly for Mercedes and Ferrari and they fail, um, what does that say about them? And um, have, have they got that? I mean, I know they've got the resources because they're such a, a powerful company, but it's it's whether or not they're prepared to put those resources into Formula One. Right. They they do have the resources, and that is why it would make any inkling of sense that Ricciardo would go to drive for them at all. So it's, um you know, they're not challenging Mercedes and Ferrari right now, but with the way that the top teams have their business model set up, the only team that could even theoretically challenge Mercedes and Ferrari would be another giant works manufacturer. So I wonder what having a a new top flight driver will do for their, for their commitment in the sport and also possibly um, a new, more favorable cost cap scenario. So, I mean, if you, if you take the whole ceiling of what the spending would be and bring it down, could you foresee a point where they could be spending with the likes of Mercedes and challenging at the top? Yeah, they definitely could be. I think um, 
I think that even with everything that's come out recently, I still think they're, they're quite a long way away from a real cost cap. Um, even when, even in 2014, 2015, when I was going to the strategy group meetings, there was discussions of cost cap and the the big teams have always got ways around it. They they pull out drivers' wages from the cost cap. They pull out senior management wages. They pull out uh, R&D expenses. There's all sorts of things that they can pull out of the cost cap to enable them to continue to spend an incredible amount of money. Um, having said all that, um, Renault have got the resources and they could get up there. I just honestly think that the gap at the moment is so big. Um, in terms of facilities, in terms of personnel, in terms of quality of personnel, that it's going to be difficult for them to get back. Um, Would you I say mean, that starts of, right at the top, Matthew? Would you say that the lack of quality starts right at the top of the team? Or? A Renault, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, but one of the thing, one of the things that happened at Lotus when uh, and in that period, so just prior to me going there, was was a lot of the very very good. So as soon as you don't pay someone on the, the month they're supposed to be paid, then they have a right to to terminate their contract or to or to start looking out elsewhere. Because a lot of the senior personnel in Formula One are on contracts a bit like um footballers. Um so they're not allowed to go and look for alternate work. You know, they're on you know they would be forced to do a year, two years of gardening leave before they could go to another team because there's so many um secrets and confidentiality etc cetera, etc cetera. the minute that you stop paying or you don't pay someone or you miss a month's payment or i think it's if you miss two on two in two in two months then they're allowed to go and talk to talk elsewhere and that's why james allison left and went to ferrari we lost our chief strategist we lost our chief uh, this is all prior to me arriving the senior race engineer a couple of our mechanics so there was a there was a huge loss of personnel and those type of people with that knowledge in f1 are very hard to re-recruit um or to recruit in the first place so there's not many adrian newey's kicking around there's not many james allison's kicking around um and it was fairly well known that james allison was really the reason that lotus did so well in 2012 2013 all right really because i mean he obviously off the back of that he then you know went to ferrari and his stock has risen and you feel that was justified yes yeah. yeah, he's a very, very clever guy. He's quite a strange character, but he's a very, very clever guy. And um, and yeah, and, and I think he's a he's he's maybe up there with 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 Adrian Newey. Um, but he's certainly he's certainly in the realms of. I mean, there was, as we talked before about Paddy Lowe, I think he's a he's a cut above Paddy Lowe. And tell you what, Erudite in the chat room says Matthew Carter greater than it's the one where the crocodile eats the one that's bigger isn't it that's how maths works what? better than cyril abitable so there you go you got fans in the chat room it's not even a question i know there's not even a there's never up for discussion surely i tell you what is it up for discussion is like, you are still um, an f1 fan probably more of an f1 fan now than before you entered the sport uh how are you enjoying this season because because th- we're going to talk about some regulation changes but this season was meant to be the season they could all follow. And I don't know if this is a false dawn, but I mean, Bahrain, for example, was just like one of the best F1 races and starts I can remember for a, for a long time. It was, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was really good. It was, uh, Bahrain always provides good, good racing. Um, I think, yes, the cars are easier, it's easier to follow um, because they've spent so much time and effort to make that happen. It was, it was obviously going to happen. I think the introduction of the extra DRS zone as well was uh, was quite key. Um, 
And I think that's something that needs to be looked at a lot of tracks because DRS, people like it, people don't like it. Um, it's made more powerful this year because they have a bigger flap to open. Um, I think that made a difference. I think you could see overtakes and then re-overtakes or um, overtakes and, and, and people pulling away or whatever. It was, uh, yeah, I thought it, I thought it, the Bahrain race was a really good race. I really, I actually genuinely enjoyed it for the first time in, in quite a while. Um, and all of it as well. There, was, there wasn't there was really a period where you could walk away from the TV and come back and something hadn't happened. It, I think a Bahrain is, 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 a, is a track, Nick, that is good, isn't it? It is good anyway. So I think that the real test will come when we get to somewhere like Barcelona or Sochi. Goodness. Yeah, I was just thinking, imagine if somebody walked away from the Bahrain Grand Prix with, you know, 12 laps to go thinking that, well, this is all, this is all sorted. This is all wrapped up. No, well, you can't do that. You had to watch it all the way to the end. And with the, with the multiple pit stops, it was, it was brilliant. So, so, um, yeah. Sebastian Vettel recently, uh, Matthew came out and, uh, and said, Oh, F1's too much about the show and not enough about the drivers. And I, I might consider quitting in 2021 if it turns out Leclerc is really good. I mean, if, if they continue down that path with the 2021 uh, regulations, but there's, there's nothing wrong with a bit of show, is there? I mean, you, you've been involved in a lot of strategy groups and Bahrain is, you know, it's under the lights. There's big sparks. Like f- there was one point where Albon, uh, he looked like, um, you know, one of these Las Vegas acts with a, a chainsaw with, um, and sparks on a, a lady's metal suit. There was just sparks like flying in his face and it just looked spectacular. What's wrong with a bit of a show? And, you know, do, do you remember having arguments with people to that regard? Do the team principals get involved? Yeah, in that? no, they, um, so Bahrain's quite interesting. So Bahrain originally was a, was not a night race. Um, and what, what actually happened is, uh, Bahrain, they like most of these circuits. They use the the Grand Prix to uh, to market their city or their country or, or however it's going to work. Um, so visit Bahrain is obviously a big is, is is a big signage all around there. And what they realised was that during the day, from the um, overhead shots, it was very obvious that it was in the middle of a desert with basically shanty towns around the edge of it. Oh no um, way! That's not the reason. And they, and they also realized that the uh, grandstands were fairly empty. So they came up with the genius idea of changing it to a night race. And then when all the lights are on and the helicopter flies over the top, you just see pitch black and a gorgeous circuit. And you don't see that this, the, the, the grandstands aren't necessarily as full as they are when you go to Silverstone. or. Uh, so, I mean, you either go that route or you go the Baku route of just cardboard buildings they weren't tempted just to build a lot of cardboard buildings uh, you know what well, it's worked so i you know i've fallen well, no, for that. For sure. it, it, as a as a as a as a show it's great and then and moving on to that onto the show i was i was sat in the strategy group meeting where bernie eccleston produced a picture of Ayrton senna going through Eau rouge um from whatever year that would have been um with sparks flying out the bottom of his car and he showed it to all the team principals and he said we need more sparks in formula one and uh, on the back of that, they actually set up a working group to design the best way to make the sparks fly. Um, so a, a group of engineers were sent out to work out which particular metal produced the most sparks um, when in contact with asphalt. And they came up with a, so then they changed the regulations for 2015. It was written into the regulations that the plank underneath the, the, the car had to be made of a specific titanium grade 04216 or whatever the hell it was. And every every plank had to be made of the same. 
in order that when the cars touched the ground, they sparked. That's just the um, the most classic old CEO story I've ever heard. I've had so many similar work experiences where uh, the the CEO comes in, he has a picture, and he just he just taps it with his index finger. He's like, "This, I want, I want this. Make this happen." And it doesn't it doesn't matter why it happened, whether it's practical, how it's going to be done, how long it was going to take, whether he'll remember it a month from now what he asked. He just <laughs> he just wants the thing. Slightly disparaging story as well, but Stephen Fitzpatrick, the guy that bought Manor, one of the, one of the many reasons that I didn't stay there for very long, he produced a picture of the Mercedes car in a meeting with all the senior engineers and said, why can't we just copy this? I genuinely sat there and watched him do it. Wow. And was there a, was he surrounded by yes men? Because I, I want to be surrounded by yes men. That would be my aim. Uh, I guess he found out whether he had yes men or not. That's mm. why I'm here. And- Exactly. Hence, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Hence, I'm not. I'm not. I'm no. Like, I didn't continue there. But yes, I mean, it just at the time. So it was. If you remember, they signed a deal to have a Mercedes engine, and they had. So this was for 2016, wasn't it? So they had a Mercedes engine and a Williams gearbox and a gear and a Williams rear suspension. And he basically thought that that was obviously. Therefore, they were going to be world champions. Right. This is this is benchmarking. It's a it's a common business practice and it's totally totally ethical. You just you just see what people are doing and you just do the same thing. Copy, yeah. Matthew Carter, copy th- paste. Thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining me in my shed and on Missed Apex podcast. Uh, you are going to be next at a Grand Prix wedding in Canada since you are a Canadian resident. I think I'm going to go to the Monaco Grand Prix actually. Um, so I'm you're going, you're going to go to the the Monaco Grand Prix. And are you one of these that says, even though millions of people are sat at home going, it's really good for the people that are there. So, you know, chin chin. No, the Monaco Grand Prix is all about uh, the show, but the, not the show that goes on on the track. It's not it's, for the, it's not it's for the likes about, of us. It's all about it's all about schmoozing your big sponsors. It's all about um, more, I think, more driver Deals and negotiations go on there than anywhere else. Um, the whole setup for the weekend's different, as I'm sure you know. So practice is on Thursday, Friday is a day off where everyone basically goes to the the paddock and and talks shop. And you know you you bring your best sponsors and then you put them on a big boat and you encourage them to sign a deal for the following year. Fantastic, uh, Nick. Do we do we have any comment of the week candidates? We don't. We don't traditionally do comment of the week with special guests. Was my understanding? <laughs> I, I thought. I thought you were all over it. Uh, just pick one. This pick is... one. Pick one completely at random. Then scroll up a little bit. I'll give you a chance to scroll up while I play this. Comment of the week. And the random comment of the week is Max Verstappen. Fer- <laughs> <laughs> that was the Maria comment. Maria Rivera. It's Max Ver Max Verstappen. Fantastic. Genius. Not even in context or anything. Well done. Comment of the week. You can follow Nick Alexander on Twitter at Nick Alexander F1. He's got a book podcast where he invites people on who haven't read a book to talk about it. Is that the whole premise of the podcast, Nick? Almost. You almost have it. But yeah. I think I'm starting to get the feeling that you deliberately misunderstand things for, never, for humor. I would never do yeah, that. But no. Yeah, so we, we read a book and then we invite one person on who's not read the book and we just discuss it. And it's kind of a book club among friends. And you can and anyone else or just the one person that hasn't read it? Just the one person who hasn't read it and two or three people who have. 
But you didn't say that. You just said we invite one person on who hasn't read it. No, that's what Spanner said. Spanner's <laughs> misled you. I tried to correct the record. <laughs> is it? Are you doing it in a nice way, or is it like a mean way where, like, you hate them? They want to enjoy the book, but you're giving them spoilers so they won't enjoy it. We we actually think the whole two weeks that we're reading the book of what a much better ending would have been, and then we tell them that that was the ending, and then they go and read it and are disappointed. Ah, it's the excellent. long game. I love it. I, I love that. I, I had an idea because uh, Tony Thunderbeast Barnard. Uh, oh, I keep saying his surname. He doesn't want me to. Never mind. He's not here to defend himself. Uh, he wanted me to sponsor him for something fun. I said, no, I'll, instead I will sponsor you to not watch any of the new Game of Thrones series until the end. But every week I sit and spoil all the episodes for you and tell you how much I enjoyed it. Uh, but he didn't go for that. He said he'd rather pay the money himself. Uh, you can't follow Matthew Carter anywhere because he refuses to go on Twitter. Uh, you, you do, don't you? You refuse to be publicly on Twitter. I bet you've got a sock account where you rant and rave at people and stuff, but... No, I just refuse. You just refuse. I refuse wholeheartedly. In that case, you'll just have to follow Matthew Carter in real life. Uh, you can look out for him. He's the one with the Wolverine hair and the, the shocking beard at the moment. You can follow the show at Mr. Apex F1 and myself at Spanners Ready. And please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Mist Apex. Until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Mist Apex. Sorry, Nick, forgot to mention the name of your podcast. Uh, do you know what? How good can a podcast about books really be? <laughs> not very good. That's not but it is called What's It About Podcast. And we are on Stitcher and iTunes and all that. Yeah, okay. E-Radio. I should plug E-Radio, shouldn't I? Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.